there is a lot of debate about whether it is, in fact, possible to have too much of a good thing. When it comes to the Babysitter's Club and the SSR podcast, I kind of think that too much is never enough. Listeners, we are coming at you with another super special edition for episode 94. Today, we are discussing the sixth Babysitter's Club super special edition, New York, New York, in which, you guessed it, the babysitters take a trip to the Big Apple. Claudia gets the ball rolling on this one after learning about some free art classes she wants to take, but each member of the crew ultimately finds something to keep them busy on their spring break adventure. Even Dawn, who is totally miserable for most of the trip. Trust me, we're going to talk about that. We also talk about how our habits around reading book series have changed over the years, and reminisce about the beauty of reading books out of order. We discuss the weird dynamics between the babysitters and adult men in this installment. We wonder why Christy would ever think it's a good idea to hide a dog in a home where she's a guest, and consider the possibility that Marianne and Stacy are actually kind of bad babysitters, since they fail to let their clients know when a strange man seems to be following their children around the city for days on end. We also take a deep dive into the issues of race and masculinity that author Anne M. Martin seems to be dipping her toe into with Jesse's storyline. And, naturally, we spend plenty of time talking about New York City itself, our different levels of nostalgia for it, the babysitter's first experience exploring it, and more. My guest is Megan Angelo. Megan has written about television, film, women in pop culture, and motherhood for publications including the New York Times, where she helped launch city comedy coverage, Glamour, where she was a contributing editor and wrote a column on women in television, Elle, The Wall Street Journal, Marie Claire, and Slate. She is a native of Quakertown, Pennsylvania, fun fact, this is very close to where I grew up, and a graduate of Villanova University. She currently lives in Pennsylvania with her family. Followers is her first novel. Follow her at Megan Angelo on Twitter and Instagram. As always, I would also love if you would consider following SSR on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Social media is a fantastic way to help spread the word about the show, and I absolutely love seeing the podcast tagged in your posts. Instagram Stories is an awesome option. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, post that screenshot to your story, and tag SSRPod before you share it. I'll give you a shout out if you do. Another great way to spread the word about SSR is, of course, to leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes. You are probably sick of hearing all of your favorite podcasters ask you to do this, but we only do it because it matters. More ratings and reviews means that we can rank higher in podcast search engines, which means we get more eyes on the show. Leaving a rating or review takes just a few seconds and it goes a long way. I appreciate each and every one. I also appreciate each and every one of my Patreon supporters. Patreon is a platform that allows SSR superfans to sponsor the show on a monthly basis in exchange for a handful of awesome rewards. You can come on board as a patron for as little as $1 per month, and the more you contribute, the more rewards you get. SSR merch, bonus episodes, newsletters, input on book selection, and more are all up for grabs. You can learn more about becoming a Patreon sponsor at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I'd like to say a big thank you to the Girl Means Business podcast for sponsoring this episode of SSR. Girl Means Business is a weekly show hosted by teacher-turned-entrepreneur Kendra Swalls. On each episode, she and her awesome guests share business and marketing tips, along with some much-needed honest conversation about what it means to be a boss babe balancing a business while raising a family. Some of you probably know that in September of 2016, I left what I was pretty sure was my dream job in book publishing to strike out on my own as a full-time freelance writer, editor, and content manager. I never could have anticipated some of the twists and turns that came with leaving a corporate career and building a network of hustles and passions 
passion projects that would ultimately become a profitable, fulfilling work life. And I wish I'd had the Girl Means Business podcast to help me out back then. If you are already an entrepreneur or are dreaming of starting a side hustle, you're going to want to listen to Kendra's show. I've shared a few of my favorite episode titles over the last few weeks, but here are just a few more. Showing up in your business, healthy body, healthy business, overcoming perfection, and yes, the list goes on. I can't wait to see what topics Kendra explores on the show in the future. You can tune into new episodes every Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when new episodes go live, and check out the Girl Means Business Facebook group for bonus materials and more in-depth conversations. Thanks so much to Kendra and the Girl Means Business Podcast for sponsoring episode 94 of SSR. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Megan. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you for having me. It's always a fun day when we're talking Babysitter's Club on the podcast. Always, always. I realized in the course of reading for this podcast that I think I need to read a Babysitter's Club like quarterly to keep my spirits up. It was a really, really nice diversion. Well, there are so many of them too that you can sort of pick and choose like the subject matter that feels like it's going to fill whatever your need is at that moment. So if you need something sort of silly, there's that. If you really want to like feel your feelings, you can read a more like family oriented book. There's always something that will just like give you what you need at any given time. Totally. And like, I think, I mean, we picked this book a long time ago, but part of what drew me to it was, oh, the super specials always felt like a huge event when they came out. It was even better than a normal new babysitter's club showing up at the library and yeah, reading it weeks later and having it set in New York was sort of crazy considering everything that's going on. Yeah. So for context, I feel like I've said this on the last few episodes and I'm sure listeners, you've heard me say it in the last few episodes you've listened to. We are recording this in the midst of coronavirus um, and we are socially distancing and self-quarantining and I currently being based in New York, I'm, I'm sort of seeing this all happen from what's feeling more and more like the epicenter um, here in the United States. Um, and Megan and I actually just bonded before we started recording because I'm moving back to my home state of Pennsylvania in three days and Megan and I just discovered that she now lives in my hometown. We're both Pennsylvania girls who lived in New York and left New York or are in the process of leaving New York. So with everything going on, I just, I feel like I need to warn you in advance that I have a lot of feelings about this book. I have feelings too. It really brought me back because do you remember reading this particular one? Like, did you have any sort of memory of it? I don't know that I read this one. I definitely like jumped around with the Babysitter's Club. Like I, I don't think Mm -hmm. I read every 
title in the series. I sort of just picked based on what was available at the school library. And I, I feel like if I read this one, I would remember it because I was a kid who was obsessed with New York. And I yeah. always knew that I wanted to live here, which is obviously like playing into my many emotions about the upcoming move. Um, so I think that if I had read this one as a kid, it probably would be sticking out in my mind more. Do you have specific memories of this one? Yeah, I do remember reading this. I was looking at the publication date because the funny thing about being a kid who grew up in the 90s and the 80s was like, you didn't read books right when they came out. It wasn't like now where like my kids, as young as they are, they're like five and three. They like know when the new dog man is out because they see something in the window, right? But like you were reading Babysitter's Club when you got to it at the library, as you're saying. And so I'm pretty sure I remember reading this one before I first went to New York when I was 11. And it was like where I got, you know, I wanted to go to like the ballet and see Lincoln Center. And now I'm like, oh, that's right, because Jesse did it. And it's so funny to remember this book in the context of like never having been to New York. And as always, the girls in the babysitter club were telling you like what was desirable about something. <laughs> right. The parts of it that are cool or in Dawn's case, the parts of it that are terrifying. Um, yeah. We'll you get talk them all. About yeah. We really need yeah. to talk about Dawn, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe your like more general babysitters club experience, because it's always fun to hear how my guests related to the series in general. Like, was there a particular babysitter that you maybe related to? Did you, I, identify with one of them more when you were a kid? Yeah, I really, I think it's because I came to it younger that I always was really interested in what Jesse and Mallory were doing because mm. they were like the junior ones, right? Yeah. And I feel like that's why Anne M. Martin put them there because if you were a little bit younger, then you were like, oh, okay, this is who I can tap into. But I also was like a serious ballerina at the time and stuff. So I loved Jesse so much and I loved Mallory too. I'm really, I feel like in all of my, pop culture experiences growing up I never idolized one character I idolized like friendships hmm. so it's always pairs so for me, it was Jesse and Mallory for sure. Interesting. I think I started reading Babysitter's Club when I was on the younger side too. Um, but I was always more of like, I thought I thought that I was a Marianne. As I get older, I realize that I've always kind of been a little more of a Christy. But I think when I was a kid, I identified as Marianne and I like really wanted to be Claudia and Stacy. Oh, well, yes. Claudia and Stacy were just like the ultimate. But I was like, oh, it's totally unattainable. Like I have all umbro shorts in my closet that I could never be <laughs> Claudia, Claudia and Stacey. But yeah, and Marianne was very attractive, not just for her own personality, but of course, like she was who got to have a boyfriend. So there was that whole element. Yeah, and she had the best boyfriend. I mean, we recently read um, another super special called Snowbound, and her boyfriend, Logan, like literally cross-country skis through the town of Stony Brook to bring her and her babysitting charges jars of peanut butter. And it was very swoon-worthy. Yeah, just setting the bar, you know, right there for all the 11 to 13-year-old boys I've ever known in my life. Totally. Like, imagine. I mean, there was no Logans no. <laughs> in my school. No, I would imagine there still aren't that many Logans. But speaking about the babysitter's ages, something that I was thinking about a lot in this book, maybe even more so than in the other Babysitter's Club books we've talked about on the podcast, I was struck by how in some moments the babysitters in New York, New York felt 
younger to me than sort of what their real ages are. And then in other moments, they felt so much older. I wonder if part of it is sort of like the time in which the book was written and sort of the expectations of kids at different ages were perhaps not the same as the expectations that are placed on kids of those same ages now. But there are moments when I was like, okay, you're acting way younger than 11 or 13. And then there were times where I was like, you're not a grown up. Why are you acting so grown up? Um, Was that just me? Or did you feel that in this book too? No, I definitely felt it too. And this is something that obviously I didn't absorb as a kid, but now as an adult and as a writer, yeah, I was kind of getting some of that. I feel like with the dialogue, they're often very young. Like they make these like hokey little jokes. It can skew kind of babyish. I don't know, maybe because they don't have social media or MTV. I'm pretty sure the babysitters never, like MTV never came up in the babysitters club. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. There just aren't that many like pop culture references in general. There's like fashion references more. And then like, obviously Claudia talks about Nancy Drew all the time, but there's not a lot of like music or TV or movies. If I'm not mistaken, I, none of those things are jumping out to me. as like major parts of the series. No, I can't remember that either. It's kind of funny because almost everyone's story in this book starts with like, well, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to like go out in the city by myself. But then the very next thing they do is like the most grown up thing. Like Jesse was like, can you walk me to Lincoln Center so I can go to the ballet? But then I'm like, but how did she like get a ticket and find her seat? And it's so, yeah, it was kind of this weird dichotomy the whole time. Yeah. So that was one of my like overarching feelings, but let's talk about the setup for this book. So it's the sixth super special was published in 1991. As we know from previous episodes, super specials tend to be about twice as long as your standard issue babysitters club book. And unlike those standard issue titles, um, they're told in sort of rotating perspectives. So instead of there being one narrator, like, in the other books, it's almost always written in more of like a diary style where there's some reason that each of the babysitters is penning their own experience and then they're going to like compile them all for some form of posterity. And that's what's happening in this book. They're going on a spring break trip to New York. First of all, who gets a two-week spring break, especially when you're in like middle school? Yeah, that was big. And everyone's just like dropping them at the train station for two weeks in New York. I mean, my, my biggest thing with all of this is what is going on with Stacy's dad that he's like, yeah, I'm just a divorced dad. I got a pretty intense job. You know, he's kind of portrayed as like this wall streeter. And then, but he's like, no, it's fine. I will take like seven to eight girls for two weeks. And then like, I'll farm the rest of them out to a friend of mine across town. It's just something about it is so gloriously nineties middle grade BSC that I just can't even. Yeah, I couldn't get a handle on Mr. McGill, and maybe it's because I'm not as familiar with him from other books where he shows up more frequently, but I couldn't figure out if he was like fancy, rich New York guy, or if he was like chill, casual, bachelor pad New York guy. Yeah, they kept referencing his like sloppy bachelor pad, and I'm like, is he on Tinder? Is he getting takeout? Like, it didn't feel like the (laughs) the responsible dad who would go above and beyond to have the whole babysitter's club over. I don't know. It was, it was a choice. Yeah. It was a bold choice. Right. And I was like, are we on that breeze side or are we downtown? Like I couldn't quite put my finger on what kind of New York dad he was, but 
but I guess that's neither here nor there. The reason that they are in New York to begin with is because Claudia, our, our artist, sophisticated girl, discovers that there's these art classes that she can take, and art is, of course, her thing, and um, she sort of petitions her parents to let her go. I loved how there were like certain parents that were asking a lot of questions about certain aspects of this, and then other times like the parents were like, sure, whatever, like I have no questions, just go on ahead. So some <laughs> of the parents like were more concerned than others. Claudia's parents didn't really seem to have that many questions, which is weird because I think they're usually pretty strict. So yeah, I don't know. I thought that was funny, but they all sort of figure out how to convince their parents to let them go. As you mentioned, Stacy's dad, Mr. McGill, volunteers to have three of the girls stay with him. And then because Stacy is still friends with Lane from when she lived in New York full time, Lane's family, the Cummingses, offer to let these other girls stay with them because Mr. McGill doesn't have space in his apartment. And two weeks is a long time to let people stay with you. So I was like, okay, first of all, Mr. McGill, um, maybe you should have agreed for like a week. That would have been more reasonable. And also the Cummingses are really generous to just be like, sure, you five girls that I that we barely know, come on in. You can stay in our house. Yeah. I don't know what was up with the Cummingses. Like I was like, well, maybe they just have a gin room somewhere and they're just locked yeah. away, not dealing with any of this because yes, it all seemed very loosey-goosey. And I guess what did, what did make it feel very babysitters club to me was sort of like the latchkey aspects, even though they're in Manhattan, right? Like they're just kind of coming and going. And, um, until somebody tries to bring a dog in, like there's not really too much friction with the supervising parents. Right. Like it's fine. As long as you don't bring in an animal, like we're good otherwise. Right. No problem. Classic nineties trope. Like everyone's always hiding a dog. Totally. So I would assume that it's been a while since you've dipped into a Babysitter's Club book. What was your impression getting back into it? It's not really a first impression because you read them when you were growing up, but what was your first like adult impression of coming back into this world? That's such a great question. You know, there's such a, it's funny because I feel like I saw it from several different perspectives. The first one is just like you're saying, it's a nostalgic return for me. And there's something that's just comfort food, like about that part in the babysitter's club book, where you just get the quick overview of who everybody is and what their family background is and what their personality is like. And I, Oh, I really loved getting to do that again. And then in terms of, it's funny cause I'm writing this as I'm working on another book. And so I'm struggling with all the typical first draft things, but I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, no, you just keep things moving. Like all of these books are just like, and then this happened and then this happened. And you can sort of see what's coming, but even though it's not the subtlest character development because it's for kids, I love that Anna Martin is always like, well, this is who these girls are. And so that's why they're doing this thing. And everything typically makes a lot of sense with their characters, I think, except for, again, maybe like I did not remember Dawn being that neurotic. Yeah, we've got to get to Dawn. I thought that something that was interesting about the usual formula of, of the Babysitter's Club books, which you just sort of referenced, we open the story and then at some point, usually within the first like two or three chapters, there's like the exposition where like, this is what Stacy is like, this is what Dawn is like, this is what Claudia is like, and so on and so forth. Um, and that, you know, I talked about this with a few other guests on Babysitter's Club 
episodes. Um, some of those guests had actually never read Babysitter's Club before. We were kind of talking about the value of that or if it ever gets old. And I thought that what was interesting about the way it's done in this book is that it's described in the context of packing for their trip. So Claudia is kind of like running mm-hmm. through what she's packing for New York. And then she's mentally thinking about like, okay, well, what do you think Christy's packing? What's Marianne packing? What's Jesse packing? Um, and so that's sort of how Anne M. Martin like leads us into the descriptions about their characters. So that was refreshing because at this point I've now read probably four or five Babysitter's Club books in the last year or so. And so I feel very mm-hmm. well versed in that exposition part of these books. So it was nice <laughs> for there to be a twist. And I don't know, I, I yeah. did feel like I learned some different kinds of things through that lens of packing. Yeah, I mean, it is very clever the way she can spin all these plates and sort of find different ways into it. But you're right. I mean, I can remember very clearly, like I used to read these books hidden inside my textbooks at school all the time when I was in like the middle grades. I can remember very clearly sort of like impatiently flipping through five or 10 pages in the middle because I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who everyone is. But again, it just fascinates me on that sort of like marketing and distribution level, even though that doesn't sound too exciting. It's it just isn't like today. Like you the Babysitters Club book you were gonna read was the one that your library had. So I'm sure I didn't start with Christie's great idea. I'm sure I just jumped in wherever. And so I think it's kind of cool that she was always making sure that no matter where you jumped in, you could kind of get a sense of who everybody was. Yeah, it's you're right. I, I think about that a lot, how I don't know that kids, kids today, if you want to use that sort of weird sounding phrase, I don't know that kids today would be as comfortable jumping into something mid-series as we were. That just was like very normal. A, a lot of times when I talk to guests on the podcast about books taken from series, I always kind of come back to that where I'm like, I don't think I read any series sort of in consecutive order, maybe until Harry Potter. I sort of feel like that was the turning point when Mm -hmm. maybe that's when like the marketing engine changed and there became this demand to market one book at a time. But before that, it just sort of was all dependent on what I could get my hands on. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I don't even think they were necessarily shelved in order at my library or anything like that. And it goes for other series too. Like, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. There's probably like a little like Lois Lowry trilogy or somewhere in there, but I can remember the feeling of like picking up a book and thinking, oh, yeah, like I I actually read the one that came after this, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very, it was just very mellow. Yeah, 100%. I had a similar experience with maybe a Lois Lowry or, you know, kind of those books that probably were more, more than a Babysitter's Club series, like written to be read in order. I just wasn't very uptight about it. I was like, oh, this is fine. I'll just go back and get that other book when I can. Let's just right. go through this story by Babysitter, maybe. That tends to be like the most fun way, I think, to jump into the Babysitter's Club, especially super specials, because we do get to see it through every perspective. Who do you want to start with? Well, should we start with Claudia, since she's the one who kind of put this whole thing together? Yeah, she was the, uh, the, the ringleader on this one. So Claudia's general plot line here is that she's taking these art classes. Um, At the beginning, it feels like she's the leader. She put this idea in everyone's head. Um, She invites everybody on the trip, but then Stacy kind of like takes over planning because she is the New Yorker in the group, obviously. And Claudia is really excited because she's going to get to go explore her art with this famous artist named Mackenzie Clark. And uh, he goes by Mac, or at least that's what she imagines she will one day call him when she's no longer afraid to to call him by by his first name. 
same. Claudia walks into the art class thinking that it's going to be this like sparkly, shiny building and she's going to feel like so inspired and invigorated by the space. And I thought that this is like a very relatable moment, especially in New York. She like walks in and it's sort of just like a stand. It feels more like, I don't know, like a community center. <laughs> like nothing's new, nothing's sparkly. It's sort of just like a bunch of kids who have been dropped off by their parents and they're drawing a stack of boxes that have been thrown on the floor. It reminded me a little bit of like Instagram versus reality, but it also just reminded me of like, this is often what happens in real life. I think, especially when you're maybe coming to a new place and you have this idea of what it's going to look like, but it's generally not what you imagine. Totally, totally. I mean, I think if you're someone who ends up in one of these aspirational places like New York or LA, that's like imagery has been pounded into you forever. And I mean, even as an adult, when I moved to New York, I was 21. And I think I kind of thought, like, I think everyone thinks their office will Rockefeller Center. Yeah. Like it's just sort of what you picture. Yeah. I found it totally relatable, even though I will say my first job was in the Condé Nast Tower. So that was pretty, yeah, pretty on par with everything I had been imagining. But yeah, yeah, I, I definitely saw through Claudia's eyes on this one. So she starts her art. They start going to these classes, and she's very confident that the teacher is going to be very impressed by her. And a couple of months ago on the podcast, we covered um, Meg Cabot's All-American Girl. And I'm not sure if you are familiar with that book, but there's a similar character arc there where the main character is really into art and she goes to take these classes um, and she sort of thinks that she's too cool for school and is fully expecting the teacher to be like, you are the best one here. Why are you even taking art classes? And the teacher ends up being very critical of her because she doesn't necessarily think about her art properly or she's just drawn like what she wants to instead of what's in front of her. And so this was very reminiscent of that. Listeners will probably remember that episode fairly clearly. It's it's kind of the same idea. But Claudia is very offended and she's very sensitive. And I will say that while I think that it was important for Claudia to get this kind of feedback, I did feel like the teacher was being a little bit too cutting like he was targeting her so much she is a 13 year old girl and he was kind of mean to her it was a little over the top even though she probably needed to learn this lesson yeah so this is another place I mean something I found strange in this book was that all the dynamics between the babysitters and adult men feel a little bit off to me mm-hmm. like not in a sinister way yeah. or anything like that but just between Mr. McGill just like letting everyone run wild in his bachelor pad and then this whole thing with the art teacher it I agree with you it definitely felt over the top and the other thing I found startling about it was sort of this thing in the beginning where in Claudia's entries she sort of had like this boy crazy take on the teacher before she met him like she was like oh I wonder if he's married like oh like it was like very crush oriented and I was like oh that's kind of weird and then thankfully it sort of goes away as soon as she's actually in New York we don't really hear any of that anymore but I thought it was so strange and I kept wondering if maybe it was like some note that Anna Martin got to be like this is for teenage girls or this is for preteen girls and they're boy crazy and like just make Claudia a little boy crazy about her adult art teacher 
So yeah, from the beginning, I was sort of back on my heels with this whole dynamic. I think that's a very accurate observation. I had some, I, I don't know, I felt like uncomfortable with a lot of the dynamics that they had with the adult men in the book. And I think we can also sort of discuss Mallory as part of this storyline with Claudia because she goes with Claudia to the art classes. And I was especially uncomfortable with the dynamic between Mallory and Mac, the art teacher. Again, not because it felt sinister, but Claudia kept making references to like, oh, you know, Mallory and Mac are just over there talking again. And whenever they go on a field trip, Mac and Mallory are sitting together on the bus and talking. And we find out later that they're most often talking about Mac's kids, which it's just like such a babysitter's club thing where of course, like a grown man (laughs) would find this 11 year old girl, like a logical (laughs) confidant about what's happening with his family. But it felt to me when I was watching things between Mallory and Mac from Claudia's eyes, I was like, oh, there's something that feels icky. Not necessarily that he's doing anything wrong, but that he's not aware of the fact that this could look a little bit strange to people that are watching his relationship with Mallory. Yeah, like, is there anyone else in the class? Yes, (laughs) you would wonder. You have to wonder. Yeah. Either he was, like, being icy to Claudia or just, like, sitting on a park bench chatting with Mallory. And, yeah, I picked up on that, too, because I was like, well, there's also, like, it was a college-level class, right? Or yeah. who was he? He was teaching, like, college students. And so the college students would definitely be like, huh, interesting that my professor is just spending two weeks chumming around with this little girl. I don't know. So, yeah, there's just things that I'm like, I know this went through rounds of editors. But, again, the 90s, they were churning them out. And um, as I got through this storyline, it was funny because my only sense of comfort was knowing that, like, this book came out in 1991, so nothing weird was going to happen. But I think where we all are right now with sort of what we're used to with narratives, both in fiction and, unfortunately, in real life with a lot of icky stuff like this, it really had me all jangled up at the beginning. If this book came out now, I'd be like, I'm not finishing this book. I don't want to see what happens here. I felt like he was taking pleasure in criticizing Claudia and, like, that he was enjoying, like, the power imbalance in that relationship. That's how I read it. And again, to your point that might just be because like that's what I'm kind of used to in terms of narrative in 2020 unfortunately and it also felt like he was just taking this a little bit too extra special attention to Mallory and those two extremes sort of slapped next to each other as Mallory and Claudia navigate these two weeks of classes together it just was a little weird for me totally I kept trying to be like if I was 11 would I need her to hit the contrast this hard to get it But I really don't think so. I mean, I think he could have been, like, hard on Claudia and said to Mallory, nice job, one time. And I still would have understood, you know, the eventual payoff of this storyline. Yeah, his number one criticism of Claudia is that she works too quickly. Um, You know, she, again, walks into class with all of this confidence and just sort of tackles each assignment really fast. And she's waiting for him to praise not only her ability, but also her efficiency and her ability to do things well quickly. And he is like, well, don't you see that everybody else around you is still drawing? Doesn't that doesn't that raise a red flag that you're doing something wrong? Um, and so she kind of take, tries to take different approaches throughout the book to like give him what he wants until she finally just sort of follows his rules and is very deliberate with a drawing toward the end when they're on a field trip to the cloisters. And he's like, yes, like you are actually one of the most talented students that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And I, I was thinking about 
you know, one of Claudia's main attributes throughout the series is that she struggles in school. Um, we hear about that a lot, and art is really her thing. And you have to wonder, too, if there were maybe some undiagnosed issues with her attention span that we never sort mm-hmm. of hone in on specifically throughout the series. And so I was thinking maybe Anne M. Martin was trying to hint in this whole discussion that Max trying to have with her over the course of the story about, like, her tendency to go through things too fast. I, I was wondering if maybe we were supposed to assume that she has similar things going on in the classroom um, in school and perhaps that's why she struggles to get good grades but again Mm -hmm. maybe I'm overthinking it no I think that's really smart and I would love I don't know if Anna Martin has ever talked about this but I would love to know like a whole list of things that she pitched that got turned down or that got softened because I do feel like that's kind of a common thread throughout these books that There's often something that will remind you of something or suggest something, but um, she pulls back just before giving it a label or making it really definitive. Yeah, and I I remember in the 90s, there being so much talk about ADD, and I I remember being in elementary school and, and hearing a lot of debate around medicating kids who had attention issues in school. And I think that debate still goes on, but I feel like it was very fresh at that time. Like it was a new thing that people were talking about. So I wonder if the author here was trying to like dip her toe into that without actually putting a name to it. Right, right. Exactly. I think so too. And I I remember that debate as well. The other thing that sort of made me sad about this storyline, again, I I think it's, it's valuable for young readers to see a beloved character getting not so positive feedback. I'm not a hundred percent sold on the way that Mac always communicated it, but I don't think it's so bad for them to see that like, it's okay for you to set out to do something that you think you're really good at. And for you to hear that you could use some work. Like that's an important lesson. So I'm happy that storyline was included here. But what made me sad is that Mallory sort of, I, I feel like Mallory, it happens at the expense of Mallory and her experience with these classes because at the beginning Mac is giving Mallory again all this positive attention sometimes for reasons that I can't quite understand like sitting together on the bus but he also (laughs) is like oh you know I really appreciate your deliberate work good job with your drawing and Claudia gets really frustrated watching that happen but at the end of the book after Claudia realizes that Mac's feedback to her isn't really about her talent so much as it is about her like work style and her work ethic Mallory then asks Mac like am I a good artist and he's like actually not really like you could be a good artist (laughs) but like you're not naturally a good artist and I I didn't love that like why does one of them have to be good and why does the other have to be bad it was nice to see Mallory getting so much positive feedback because my impression of Mallory throughout the series is that we don't get to know her very well and so I enjoyed Mm -hmm. seeing her flourish in something Um, and it just I was bummed that like in order for Claudia to feel good about herself Mallory had to like get this sort of straight talking moment with our teacher where he was like, yeah, you work hard, but like, you're not really very good at this. Yeah. And he, he like goes out of his way to also tell Claudia, like surprise Mallory sucks. Yeah. And it's like, you really didn't have to do that. I mean, also I'm gathering from like the fact that the assignments are so rigid and that like people are, are drawing piles of boxes, that this is sort of like a class on fundamentals, shape, perspective. I don't think it's like really Mac's job to 
snuff out the artistic aspirations of like an 11 year old like their bodies and minds haven't even settled yet let's let's give the girl a chance yeah she's a literal child and you're telling her that she's like bad at something which I just don't think is necessarily a great approach the upside is that Mallory leaves the class with this confidence of you know what like I'm not going to be this amazing fine artist like Claudia because Max says I'm bad um but I'm good enough to maybe do what I want to do which is to illustrate children's books and she leaves the city with this whole idea for a children's book in her head so that was the silver lining of it but I just I didn't like that it had to be so black and white where the lesson for Claudia also involved Mallory learning like a very harsh truth about herself yeah and like I was like wow Mallory took that really well and then a few days went by where I was in the house still more with my three children and I was like oh yeah now I understand why Mallory was so chill about this she's just happy to be away from her 49 so for two weeks and you know if one of her dreams gets crushed so be it she's at peace she's having a great time yeah that's true that's definitely true of Mallory we've we've referenced Dawn a couple of times times so far so I think maybe we go to her next Dawn is just miserable is really all that I can say about her I pulled out a few quotes from her sections of their trip to New York she says I tried to tell myself that I was just nervous but as soon as our train entered that dark tunnel into Grand Central I knew I was wrong I wasn't excited I was scared to death I keep remembering all those horror stories I read about crime and danger in New York City Stacy says that's not fair she says we can find crime and danger anywhere even way out in the country thanks a lot Stace but that New York has a bad reputation, which is like a classic New Yorker answer coming from Stacey. Beyond just being unhappy to be in New York, she's so dramatic about the fact that her friends are trying to enjoy their trip. Um, One of my favorite lines was, and guess what happened in the morning? My friends deserted me. (laughs) So here's my thing. First of all, I don't feel like this lines up at all with Dawn's character throughout the rest of the series. I I feel like she's a pretty chill California gal. Um, And so I guess part of what's going on here is maybe the author is trying to contrast the West Coast city lifestyle with a more East Coast city lifestyle like in New York. So maybe that's what she was trying to go for. I don't think it worked. And my other thought is that like especially adult women, we have all been on a trip with this friend. We have all been on a trip with the friend who just like cannot pull it together and has either maybe personal stuff going on back home or is mad at one of the other people on the trip. But generally it's like a long weekend. The fact that this is going to be happening for two weeks, I was like, oh no, I see exactly (laughs) where this is going. And I do not want to be on a trip for two weeks with this friend. Totally. Like Dawn is not invited to our bachelorette parties. No. Um, like she is she's the one who's like oh well I just want and you're like oh please stop don't even finish the sentence you're gonna ruin everything yeah it was really over the top and again I kept thinking okay so Anna Martin's probably writing this in like 89 90 I just couldn't I was like who is this for I mean I know that New York has had a full reputation over the decades but I was alive in this time and I don't remember my parents who were like pretty strict and nervous people about my safety ever portraying cities this way it was just like really really over the top so I'm not sure why all of that got through yeah it it was a lot um also she was so miserable and so resistant to going outside that she decided that she was going to just start cleaning Stacy's dad's apartment I love that he was sort of just like laughing it off like oh you know Don like classic (laughs) Don this is so invasive is he going into your like underwear drawer he's cleaning your kitchen cabinets like who knows where else she's going this 
felt so weird. Again, just like way off. And I kept picturing Mr. McGill, like going into the office and being like, sorry guys, sorry I'm late. Couldn't find my ties because my 13 year old daughter's friend was all up in my closet again. Like, no, this doesn't happen. It's like, if you saw this happen once, you would be like, the trip is over and everyone needs to go. Right. Everybody's acting inappropriately. Like, please pick up your children. Also, it's not like Stony Brook is that far from New York. So I just, I think I noted at least 10 times in this book, Dawn should probably go home. It's not that hard. She can get yes. on a train. Her mom can pick her up. She tried. It didn't work. She was so unhappy. And I, I was just like kind of sick of it. It was, it was so much. It was, it was awful. And like, so part of this is my perspective because right now the book I'm trying to write is about girls like coming of age in the nineties and the early aughts. And like, I'm going back and seeing how much stuff directed at us, like included some element of boys Mm -hmm. and we all loved boys, but like they didn't have to be part of everything. And I'm really starting to see that in many ways they were in stuff that was aimed at us. And again, I'm like, oh, cool, Dawn. Like, you made your friends miserable every single day, but then, like, one cute boy on crutches comes around, and you're like, oh, it's fine. He said New York is fine, so now I'm kind of okay. And may I just note that I almost almost had to stop when she described Richie, who is this neighbor boy who she meets because she's staying home like a recluse and he lives in the building, She describes him like she describes his looks and she says he let the back of his hair grow into a very chilly little tail. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't do it. It both like took me back in a horrible way to the age of rat tails. And like I really I had thinning patience for the slang word chili that the babysitters club is trying to make happen because, because, you know. Yeah. In the words of Gretchen Wieners, you know the rest. Like, chili is not going to happen. Right. So. They decided that instead of cool, they were going to call things chili. Um, and, yeah, it was a total Gretchen Wieners moment of, like, it's not going to happen because it's very awkward. It's very awkward. It has no flow. Yeah. No flow. So, yeah, Don was just, like, MVP annoying as hell this whole time. Yeah, Don was super annoying, although there was something about Richie. And I think it was just his general take on the city. This storyline and these moments that we had with Richie where Richie's showing Don the, like, real New York. As I approached, like, my final days in New York City, this was very bittersweet for me to read because I related to some of what Don was going through. I always loved New York City, but there are some people in my family who are not as excited about a big city, and so I've spent a lot of my adult life sort of trying to be like, it's actually really great. There's nothing to be afraid of. Like, you should come in. You should check this out. And so watching Richie try to give Don that experience was such a reminder to me of what I tried to do for those people, especially in my first years in the city where my eyes were wide open to everything and everything felt new. And I just wanted to like show people my New York and just the way that he like brought her to places that were more normal. Like we're not going to go to Times Square. We're not going to go to the busiest parts of the city. The reason that you don't like it here is because you've never seen the quieter streets or the good restaurants or, um, you know, the places where you can buy like a $2 taco. Uh, so I was sort of emotional about those moments just because I I think that that's an aspect of this book that anybody who's lived in New York can really relate to. That is so sweet and such a good point. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember that feeling so clearly of like, if someone was coming to visit, then New York's reputation rested on your shoulders. Like you'd be trying so hard to be like, okay, we're going to go to all our favorite places. And like, 
if something happened and the train wasn't running, you would just be taking the heat because you're like, oh, are yes. they having a good time? Do they think New York sucks? Oh, man, I, I can't say I miss that, although I have a great sense of nostalgia for all of the places that I used to take those people to. Yeah, it's a classic like New York transplant experience, I think. Yeah, and while I agree with you that it was sort of weird that Richie had to be Dawn's savior when she was surrounded by like her friends who should have been able to lift her up. I did feel like the Richie storyline was kind of unfinished and I wish that I knew more like what was going to happen with them after this. So next up, let's talk about Jessie because I know you mentioned she was one of your favorites and we already talked a little bit about her first step or her first wish um, on arriving to New York being to go to Lincoln Center. Of course, I agree with you that like not quite sure who paid for her ticket or when she got the ticket because we sort of skipped that step. But she goes and she, I believe the first ballet she sees is Swan Lake and she's totally taken with it, of course, but she also is sitting next to a cute boy. Um, and given what you just shared about your research, about sort of that narrative that was constantly shared with girls in the 90s and early aughts about everything having to do with a boy, what did you think about about that piece of this? So this one I liked because like, so this is where I want to see the boy. Okay. Like this was a, this was a great mini rom-com. She helped him grow. He helped her grow. Like this is when, you know, when boys are used properly, I love it. I mean, like, it's great. And I thought this was so fascinating because again, you see the author kind of like going a certain place with something. She's not going to go too far, yep. but basically the kid that Jesse meets is a ballet dancer, but he gets made fun of by other boys all the time. And I think they call him a sissy is kind of the word that she chose. That's like, you know, what we're going to be using here to sort of hint at a larger storyline. But I thought that was, that's one of those things where I look at these books and think, okay, here's an actual set of pages where someone gets to think about something that maybe they have really and truly not encountered yet in their own life. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. And I, my impression was that Anne M. Martin may also have been skirting a race issue a bit too, because Jesse is the only babysitter in the club who's black and Quint, the boy she meets at the ballet is also black. And Quint makes one comment sort of in this larger conversation about being made fun of for loving to dance, where he says, those are nice thoughts, Jesse, but you don't know what it's like. You don't have to walk down my street every day. And then later on in the book, when again, she's pushing him to do this audition for Juilliard, push, he's fighting against her because again, he's like, you don't, you don't get it. And she says something to the effect of like, I know what prejudice is. Like I've experienced prejudice. My friend Claudia has experienced prejudice. My friend Mallory has experienced prejudice. And then Quint kind of cuts her off, which I appreciate it yes. because mm -hmm. Mallory is white. You know, Claudia is also, um, she's an Asian American student. And so, um, she likely has experienced some prejudice in their overwhelmingly white town in Connecticut. Um, and she also has learning disabilities or we're meant to think that she does. So I think Jesse's sort of hinting at the fact that perhaps she's teased for those reasons. But then as soon as she maybe even suggests that her friend Mallory, who again is like a white kid in Stony Brook, Connecticut, has encountered prejudice, Quint very deliberately jumps in and is like, no, that's not at all what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I was wondering again, if Anna Martin was trying to be like, okay, not only are we talking about the masculinity issue here, but I'm also trying to indicate that like, it's hard enough growing up as a little boy who is interested in extracurriculars that aren't generally sort of promoted in like a very heteronormative mindset, but to then be a black little boy trying to do those same things would be that much harder. I was very interested in that. Yeah. I loved that too. And I loved that Jesse sort of went right at it. 
and brought the Claudia in of it all. It's funny because I had a different reaction to the line where she sort of was, I was like, what was she going to say about Mallory? I'm so curious to hear. Like, sometimes I feel like Mallory, they hint that she's sort of poor or she has less money than everybody. But it was, I was glad that Quint cut her off because I was like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not really part of this. But again, these books were written by a white author during a time where inclusivity was sort of always the last word on um, matters of race and racial inequality, right? Like we were still all trying to be like, we're the same and we all have our problems. So I thought it was interesting that they like left in the Mallory part at all. Like it would have, it would have been much more timeless to me if they just kept it to Jesse and Claudia and Quint didn't even have to cut Jesse off because Jesse is really smart. I've always sort of viewed her as the most intelligent and mature Mm. of the babysitters. And so I was like, yeah, would Jesse, the character really group in Mallory here? I'm not so sure, but in any case, I think it's a great, you know, starting point for kids reading this who haven't thought about these things to start thinking about them. Yeah, I read it as she didn't really have anything meaningful to say about Mallory's prejudice, not by any fault of her own, but like the way I read it was like she's kind of grasping at straws to be empathetic to Quint and be like, I get it. You know, I see all of my friends encountering different kinds of prejudice, but you can overcome it. Like you can do your thing again, like not because she is ignorant to the very real prejudices that a person of color would encounter because I'm sure she has been through those things herself, but I just sort of felt like she was just desperate to make a point. And that's why Anna Martin wrote that Quint would interrupt her at that moment because he'd be like, okay, no, we're done here. Your friend Mallory, her prejudice that she might encounter is absolutely not at the same level as something that I would go through um, living on my street in New York City, carrying my leotard to go to dance class. Yeah, yeah. I like that take. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Well, okay, the good news is, the good news about that is that Jesse convinces Quint to audition, and then we get kind of a little epilogue that he's gotten in, which is really exciting. Um, And they also start a little romance. We recently read the next super special, uh, Snowbound, for the podcast, and they are, like, officially an item in that one. So um, I'm not sure how long the relationship... Yeah, he actually, like, takes a train out from New York to go to a dance with her, and then they end up getting snowed in at Jesse's dance studio. And, of course, he's, like, a good babysitter on top of everything else. So, yeah, their relationship (laughs) goes on for at least another book or two, which is great. And I I liked their little relationship. It felt pretty age-appropriate, which I think can be a hard balance to strike. It felt less age-appropriate in the next book because it becomes, like, a long-distance relationship, which inherently feels, like, more mature and serious. So I didn't feel like it translated as well. But in this book, it felt felt very real to me, um, or it felt very true to what an 11-year-old might feel. That's so interesting. I need to read that one, first of all, because when you just said, oh, they get snowed in at Jesse's dance studio, it was, like, a lightning bolt, and now I do have a memory of that book. And also, like, I kind of love the long distance pen pal boyfriend actually because like can you imagine like jesse would be walking around for like four weeks and not hear from him but think like well that's my boyfriend i have a boyfriend whereas now like if you don't get a text back in three hours you're like well we're probably done right it's over you haven't liked any of my instagrams this week we're done It's over. Um, So I would say that the other three babysitters, to me at least, had, like, the least interesting storylines. Or I don't know. They felt arbitrary to me or something. So Christy, like, doesn't really have anything planned 
she's just like along for the ride in New York. And her big thing is that she finds a dog in Central Park. She names him Sunny. And uh, we referred to this earlier in the conversation, but she just decides that she's going to try to hide him in the Cummings's very fancy apartment. And that, as you might imagine, like doesn't go that well because eventually Mrs. Cummings finds the dog and Christy's big thing is that she has to like figure out where the dog is going to live because her stepdad puts his foot down and is like, we can't have any more living creatures in our home. They have all of these kids and all of these dogs. And so she now is like going through the heartbreaking process of finding a new home for him. I think it felt pretty true to Christy's character, which I appreciated. What did you think of Christy in this book? You know, she was fine. I, my relationship with Christy is always like, okay thanks Christy <laughs> like, yeah I don't I don't know I never was like super into her storylines even though she was sort of the mastermind in some ways and this was another one where I was like oh I just you know there's a lot of juicy stuff going on right now and I just can't be bothered with another dog hiding storyline from the 90s but I did feel for her a little bit because you know as you get with so many of her storylines there's sort of the hinting at like the shifting dynamics of her home life and she's still sort of adjusting to like oh I think I'll be allowed to have this dog but then she's not but yeah Christy is just like that friend who's always there that you're kind of like sometimes you're like okay I don't know and then later you go to college and you're like I really miss Christy but until then you don't really appreciate her yeah I think that's a great way to summarize her plotline in this book at least I'm usually a Christy fan but in this I was like okay whatever I'm glad you found the dog I'm glad you kept it safe super dumb of you to think that these people who are like opening their home to you are going to not be upset that you're letting an animal live in their guest room um, without permission but I'm glad at least like you found a home for it and of course it was a kid because we're talking about the babysitters club here and uh, Brandon Leach <laughs> is going to I'm sure offer a very loving home to Sunny in New York um, but it was like I was like come on Christy you're better than this like you're too smart to think that your hosts aren't going to be upset that you're letting an animal live in their home like that's just come that's on. what I mean like do you think it's just that now we're adults who have our own places that we have to like Swiffer and keep nice? Because, you know, when I was a kid, I was always on board for hiding a pet. That yeah. was like the ultimate quest, like justice you know, sort of effort, like, oh my God, you're saving this animal. But now all I see is like, are you kidding me? What a mess. Like, this is so obnoxious. So maybe it's me. I mean, I think there's an age element for sure, but I guess I think I, even as a kid, if she had been hiding the dog in like her own home, then maybe I would have been on board. But I'd like to think that even as like a tween, I would have read this and been like, have you no manners? Like, these are your hosts. You don't even know these people. <laughs> like, you're just going to totally. bring a dog inside? I don't know. And I'm a huge dog lover, I, as listeners know. So I say this with no anger toward the dog. I'm just frustrated with Christy because she could have put Sunny in a really bad situation, too. Like, what if Mrs. Cummings had been so mad about the whole thing that she just, like, released Sunny into the streets of New York City? So true. So true. Yeah, I, it did feel a little bit like a blind spot on Christy's part. She's usually pretty responsible. And also with Christy, quick departure. Do you have the book? Like, do you see the cover of the book? Yeah, I have it in front of me. Can we talk about Christy's clothes on the cover of this book? It's bad. Um, I would describe it as like sort of gabardine suit bottom. <laughs> like it's like a real, and then there's like legit sort of brown leather oxfords with a slouchy sock that like it's hurting me just to look like the slouchy sock doesn't fit well in those shoes and I know it and then sort of like a classic <laughs> Christie big cotton Lanzan turtleneck 
But I don't know. Something. Well, everyone's clothes on this cover are kind of amazing. I'm not sure why the Hard Rock Cafe was such a thing. And I was going to ask you if you remembered, like, were we all just, like, dying to find a Hard Rock Cafe? And, like, was it our Mecca? Because they were obsessed. I think we loved Hard Rock Cafe, and I think we loved Planet Hollywood. Okay, that, yes, Planet Hollywood does elicit, like, a visceral reaction in me. And, like, but Rainforest, yeah, don't really... you remember, do you remember Rainforest Cafe? That was also a big one. Do I remember? Mm-hmm. I, I had the chicken and pineapple sandwich, and I was like, this is the height of glamour. Doesn't get better than this. <laughs> You're like, I'm fancy. I'm eating at the Rainforest <laughs> Cafe. Yeah, Christy's outfit on the cover is bad. I mean, the top that she's wearing could be cute with, like, a classic 90s black legging, so I'm not quite sure what's happening with the pants. I will include a a photo of this um, in the show notes so listeners can check it out, but it's not good. And I will say that, like, in the beginning of the book when Claudia is walking through everybody's personalities, she talks about how Christy is, like, immature because of the way she dresses, which I thought was annoying because I'm like, okay, there are a lot of things that Christy is. I don't really find her to be very immature. I actually think she's kind of, like, a leader. Maybe I'm projecting because I do think I'm a little bit of a Christy. But she just, like, she's bad at fashion. Like, that's that's all that we can say about the, the way she dresses. It doesn't mean that she's immature. And this cover proves it. She's just bad at fashion. She's just bad at fashion. And to me, that's more of a reflection on Claudia. That, like, Claudia does really kind of judge people by their clothes. And I feel that Claudia is, like, the one who's the most susceptible to, like, the teen magazines that are not, like, a big part of the Babysitter's Club. But in my mind, Claudia is, like, super susceptible to sort of rules around fashion and femininity. I will say that I would almost wear Marianne's outfit. Like, I, the yeah. sh- shorts are kind of cute, right? Yeah, I like, like Marianne's look and the pigtails. Denim. It's, like, overall a nice – it's good styling. It's cute. It's cute. Okay, so that's my – I just had to get that out of my system. That was our fashion moment. You heard it here first, everyone. So speaking of people who, like Christy, make decisions that are – far below them and exercise very bad judgment. I guess we should close out with uh, a brief discussion of what happens with Marianne and Stacy, who are, of course, babysitting because we can't not have a babysitting storyline in a Babysitter's Club book. And they pick up a babysitting job like the day that they get to the city. Hilariously, these people who are like ambassadors don't even ask for references. They're like, oh, you guys <laughs> have a Babysitter's Club? That sounds legit. You can for sure shepherd our children around New York City. Um, I was like, okay, that that's irresponsible parenting, first of all, because you're acting like you're so important and you don't even have time to hang out with your kids, but you really don't care at all what these babysitters, what their experience looks like, and you don't even know where they're taking your kids, which I think is also a function of, like, there weren't any cell phones, obviously, but it was making me laugh that every morning the Harringtons, who are their new babysitting clients, are basically just, like, dropping off their little kids and being like, great, see you later. But I'm like, don't you guys care where they're going? So the the, the beef that I have with this and the reason that I feel like Marianne and Stacy really let me down is because they see that there's like a man in a hat and dark glasses following them around New York City when they're babysitting these kids. And their first instinct is like, let's figure out if the guy is chasing us or chasing the kids. And then once they find <laughs> out from this weird little test they do where they essentially like use the kids as bait in the park, they're like, oh, he seems to be more interested in the children. So that's even less of a reason for us to let a grown up know right away. Like that for some reason seemed to make them feel more comfortable because they were like, oh, it's fine. We're babysitting them. So no worries. We've got this. And I I was just so frustrated. I was like, at at what point do you finally realize 
we should just tell a grown-up, especially Marianne. Marianne's supposed to be the quote-unquote smart one. Yeah, this, I mean, a lot did not add up here. But you're touching on exactly what I found both disturbing and hilariously. Their response to this was like, if you saw a fire and you sent someone an email saying, like, there's a fire. Instead of, like, putting that. Like, they're like, you know, there's a man following us, but let's not rush into anything here. Let's, you know, we are 12, so let's gather information over the course of several days. It's totally wild. And also, I don't know why, but I think the part of it that irritated me the most was the beginning when Marianne is like, oh, there's lots of men in hats, hats and sunglasses around today. <laughs> hmm. And then like two days later, she's like, hang on. It was all the same man. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, that's like where a three-year-old would be at cognitively. Like you can tell if you're looking at the same person over and over again, you don't think there's like 80 different men, something about that was so strange to me and I could just picture the author being like whatever just go with it just it's fine but yeah, yeah another thing where it's like what age are they actually yeah I felt like Anna M. Martin was maybe coming in like a couple hundred words under her minimum and so she just added a couple paragraphs <laughs> about Marianne thinking that it was multiple people because I had a similar reaction um and to your point about the email about the fire. I don't think these girls even sent the email. They like drafted it until the end of the book. They drafted like, it. We have it in our outbox and we're prepared to send it, but only <laughs> if we see the flames taking over the whole building because they waited until they were like absolutely sure that there was a strange man following them to just let it's, the parents know. It's so true. And I love that they're like actual game plan. And I can't remember which one said what now, but one of them is like, so then, okay, he's after the kids. So we don't let the kids out of our sight. And then the other one's like, no, we don't let them out of our arms. Right. And I was like, what? <laughs> great plan, guys. Great this plan. This is going to work. Yeah. Great, great plan. Meanwhile, the parents are like, you know, sort of portrayed as like prime minister adjacent. And they're just, yeah, as you said, they're just like, sure, South Street, Seaport, whatever you want. And then, of course, the guy who's following them ends up to be a bodyguard that the parents have hired, right? So it's like, oh, okay, well, the Harringtons have, like, two brain cells then. Right. But still, how would this be enough for anyone in terms of a solid arrangement? Right. I'm like, you guys are actually terrible babysitters. Like, you are the worst at babysitting if this does not immediately raise a red flag. The fact that these, like, very important people took your word that you were good babysitters and then you got this job, you're just proving how terrible you are at this by not reading the cues and just asking if there might be an issue. Um, so that was a little disappointing. As a 29-year-old, I saw the bodyguard thing coming, um, but I would imagine mm -hmm. that if I were younger, maybe I wouldn't have seen it, and it would be, like, a fun surprise. Maybe it went on, like, a little too long. I probably could have used, like, little one less appearance of him. But I can see how a kid would be like, oh, of course, like, that's crazy. I didn't see that coming. But as an adult, I was like, yep, he's the bodyguard. Yeah, she gave everybody a good long time to, like, Get on board before the big, the big reveal. Yeah. So on the whole, how has this experience with the babysitters and the babysitters club and the babysitters in New York held up to your experience with, with all of them when you were a kid? Um, did it hold up for you coming back into this world or did you feel disappointed? You know, I mean, it held up for me with the giant grain of salt that like I have to be responsible for taking because I'm 
35 years old. But like my main, I don't know, my main takeaway was honestly a really earnest sense of nostalgia for New York and not just for like New York now. I mean, you can be nostalgic about New York today because New York is literally not what it was three weeks ago, which is kind of strange. But I also felt really nostalgic for just like the version of New York you have in your head before you've ever gone there and when you first get there and just sort of, you know, you've never heard what the rent is in New York. You've never been through a hurricane or a disaster. You've never been on the subway with anyone shady. I mean, like just the pure sort of dream version of New York. And like, even though I've had so many experiences there now, good and bad, it's like really lovely to come back to that place of remembering how much you just wanted to get there. Like, we're so lucky we got to get there. Well, I don't think I could have said that much better myself. This is, like, one of the only blocks of time over the last four days that I haven't been crying about leaving New York. Oh, sorry. No, no. I'm like, this is actually, I like what you said, but I'm not even going to try to add on to it because I might start crying again. Um, But, yes, I echo everything that you said. And it was an interesting time to read this book. It was a special time to read this book for me. I had all of the emotions and And it's just a reminder of the special place that the city will always have in my heart, not only because of like the eight years that I've actually spent living in it, but because of like the dream that it signified for so many years, because I always wanted to live here. So I saw that in a lot of these girls and seeing it through their eyes was really special. Other than the Babysitter's Club, super special number six, New York, New York. Megan, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I'm reading a great book right now. It's really, really different. It's called We Ride Upon Sticks by Quan Barry. B-A-R-R-Y. And um, I believe she's written fiction before, but she's also a poet. So there's kind of this incredible like quality to the prose. But also important to know, it combines the 80s, girls field hockey, and witchcraft. Wow. So yeah, it's like if I could just like pick three things out of a hat, that's kind of what I want right now. Um, <laughs> and so I'm loving it. I highly recommend it. I'm also, if you know, just for a, a middle grader kind of kid recommendation, I'm reading my kids The Twits by Roald Dahl. And that like seriously holds up. That is a fantastic book. Yeah, we've done a couple of Roald Dahl books on the podcast, but not The Twits yet. So we'll have to get back to that at some point. Um, I I will include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode, plus a link to the super special book that we read and that we've been talking about. And of course, I'm going to include a link to Followers, your book, Megan, which has one of my favorite covers that I've seen in a really long time. Um, And I I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but it's high on my TBR list. And I'm hoping that once I'm settled post-move, I will finally get to read it because I'm obsessed with the synopsis and it feels like it's right up my alley. So listeners, I hope you will join me in reading Followers and raving about it because I'm sure that's going to be our immediate reaction. Oh, thank you, Allie. That's so nice. And thank you for having me. It was so nice to be with you. It was nice to be with you too. And knowing all these parallels that we have in our lives, it was nice to meet you. Um, And I just really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck with the move. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSRPodcast on Facebook to join the group. 
To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>